Michael, welcome to our uh, Best Minds in Real Estate uh, webinar series. I'm delighted to have you join us today to uh, share your thoughts, observations, and uh, counsel for where we are, where we're headed, and how things are going to develop. Uh, for our audience, uh, Michael is uh, CEO of Crow Holdings, and he's been at the helm there for about two or three years. Before that, he's had a long career at uh, Morgan Stanley in the moment. I'm going to ask him to give himself a bit more proper introduction, but uh, I'm delighted to have you on board, Michael, and I consider you to be one of the more thoughtful people in real estate, so I look forward to your comments uh, uh, today. So uh, welcome on board, Michael, and maybe you can take uh, a few seconds before we start, uh, give us a sense for uh, where do we find you today, how are things going for you personally with this sequestering, and uh, how are you staying uh, mentally and physically fit and uh, sane? Good questions. Thanks, Gotti. I appreciate uh, being here and, and having a chance to talk to you today. As always, um, I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you. I uh, look at one level, I don't think I'm any different. It's an uncomfortable period of time. You know, this is a real health crisis and we're all adapting to it. And related to that, we're sheltering in place. And, you know, there's a degree of, of concern. Uh, I happen at this moment in time to be in New York, in the New York area, where's the epicenter. This is very real for me. There are friends who've suffered and parents who've passed on. Community of people where I grew up and people I love. And so that affects you. Uh, I've managed to keep fit by walking. I'm literally doing 10 to 20,000 steps a day. Wow. Uh, I'm getting out, I'm doing my conference calls when I'm not doing a Zoom out there. I've, uh, I've actually lost a few pounds during this and uh, that's really help helpful for me. So that's how I keep this clear and that's how I keep this clear and, you know, and I'm doing okay. And my family, my parents, my kids, my wife, we're okay and uh, we're sequestered and healthy so I I'm okay right now. I'm glad to hear that, Michael. And whatever you're doing, keep doing because you look good and you sound great. Thank you. Uh, good. All right. So um, give us a quick, very high-level overview of uh, Crow Holdings, the organization, and uh, the path you're on. And maybe you can wrap it up by giving, uh, giving us an update as to what has changed in the last uh, 60 days since the pandemic uh, uh, broke out. Got it. Nothing's changed, Gotti, all the same. No, um, okay, right, right. In it, look, in its simplest form, uh, Crow Holdings has two main real estate businesses. One is we have a real estate investment business, a, a real estate value add private equity business through funds where we invest with a team of people across the United States, the teams in Dallas. And we've been doing that with the same team for, for quite some time now. And, and we invest capital alongside and partnering with institutional investors and that's an important and critical component of our business. The other business is a real estate development company that's a local business where we have offices all over the United States and we build apartments and we build industrial properties throughout the country. And those are the two real estate businesses that we're engaged in. Um, you know, the past 60 days, <laughs> so whenever that end of February, mid-February, when it starts becoming really clear that this is a real global issue, um, I think the first thing that my mind went to was liquidity, stress testing, planning, being prepared. Um, I happen to be with an organization that has 70 years of history and leadership and the people in the field understood that at the same time that I did. And so we got our arms around that very quickly and understood where we're at. 
And then it was pending transactions. There's a lot of things that if they weren't nailed down, uh, they weren't proceeding. And so you had to participate in that, that process for a period of time. And then you had all the stakeholder communications, you know, your tenants, your investors, your lenders, lots of questions, engaging, answering, analyzing, responding. And then it was the April rent drum, drum roll as we anticipated what would happen. Um, and, uh, and it came in pretty, you know, look, we'll, we'll talk about it. It came in certainly better than a asset classes that we're engaged in. And, and we're starting to move to new business opportunities and we'll talk more about it. But um, a lot of my energy is focused on going forward in part because this organization is really healthy and in a, in a good place and gives me a chance to focus on what's next. So this is, excuse me, this is shaping up to be a significant uh, downturn. We don't know if it's a, a hiccup or a depression or somewhere in between, but it's not going to be nothing. So how well prepared do you feel you have been as crow holding for uh, a substantial economic downturn and a disruption? Very. You know, we, look, if you look at our business, there's, there's three levels. One is at the company level, at the holding company level, and we've maintained a highly diversified investment portfolio with large amounts of liquidity, and we are fine. Our funds uh, have also invested largely in multifamily and industrial in certain niche areas that have held up in particularly well, and we have been prudently leveraged, and we have been smart with our cash. Uh, and our joint ventures in our development business equally have been prudently levered with strong capital partners and access to capital. And by the way, our development company is only industrial and multifamily. Um, and so when you roll all that up, we're prepared. Yeah. And, and are you prepared defensively and offensively or yes. more one versus the other? We're both. Now, look, I think everybody, you understand this as well. It's not, the question is how is real estate faring, particularly at this point in time, you can't answer that question generally. You start at one end of the spectrum with hotels and you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum with this industrial. And I think a lot about how you're faring has to do with where are you at in that spectrum. All right. So you, you've chosen to be somewhere over here in your uh, uh, you know, visual with apartments and industrial, which are probably the two, two of the most stable so far anyway, uh, investment asset classes, correct? Yeah, so that's yeah. good. Look at so what, is, what is your uh, offensive posture? What are you doing offensively? Uh, when are you gonna, if you are doing it now, great. If not, what, is, what are your plans going forward? What are your predictions? If you look at the industrial sector, we have always, there have been a number of things that have driven our, 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 our investment senses over, over the years. Uh, and one of them clearly has been e-commerce. You sit here today and you're, you're bringing forward years and years of demand on e-commerce for all the reasons that we've been talking about. You're watching changes in onshoring and manufacturing, which began to take place long before this COVID crisis and will now accelerate as a result of it for both we'll be re-examining our healthcare infrastructure and the inventory. And so when you look at that asset class, it is fair to say the sheer demand for appropriate logistics and industrial properties and infrastructure is growing and you see it 
right now in the middle of this pretty tremendous recession that's hurting all of us, but that one sector is holding up and we are engaged in that sector in a significant way, investing our resources and capital in new opportunities. So what, what have you done in the last 30 days as far as industrial deals? What, what, what does it look like? We've sold properties that have closed. We've entered into agreements with people who are interested in acquiring properties. We've started new development projects. We've raised capital around new development projects. We have leased very significant leases across the country. New dialogue starting with large users of real estate who have new space needs. Um, it is active for us. End of February into March, there's no doubt that as this thing came, we all paused. Um, it's May 8th or 9th or whatever day it is today. Uh, and things in that sector have clearly slowly over the past month and a half gone from stop to, huh, this is real. This is sustained. So as a developer, uh, starting a new industrial project, uh, you know, would you do that? Are you doing that on spec or are you doing that with a uh, pre-leased uh, environment uh, at hand? Well, I mean, if you look at most of our business over the over this cycle, it's been primarily speculative, acquiring good sites and titling them, building them in good locations and, and assuming the leasing risk. Uh, but along that way, we've always had relationships with users of space and we've worked with them and we continue to have a mosaic of speculative and built to suit opportunities. How hospitable are the capital markets to uh, that kind of a development uh, and uh, construction activity? The construction lending markets are, are, are hurting right now. And there's no doubt that that is at this moment in time an area that, that needs healing. But that doesn't mean there's no construction lending available. And we have a broad dialogue with the lending community and it's harder, there's no doubt. And it's terms aren't quite as good as they were. And, but nonetheless, it's crawling back to some ability with the right sponsors and the right capital structure uh, there is capital that's slowly developing on the construction lending side. On the equity side, there's interest across a wide range from large institutions to private equity to open-end funds to it's a broad range of people interested. How close are you even think about back at the end of February? Well, we've pursued some new land sites that we've gotten control of since that period of time, but I don't think we've broken ground and right. started construction on something that wasn't in our vision at the end of February. I was, I was curious if you had gotten any transactions over the finish line as far as not just tying them up, but also raising the equity, funding the construction debt and getting them started. It sounds like you're still working on yeah, it. Yeah, we just haven't had That's enough fine. time, but that'll, Anything could change tomorrow. The world could change as we know. No one gets credit for predicting this virus. No one. Right. So we'll see. We'll see right. what the future holds. Good. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, you're, you're certainly um, uh, in the cutting edge of the evolution from my experience, talking to lots of people with respect to how quickly uh, you've been able to uh, or, or decided to bounce in and, and uh, uh, lean into the opportunity as opposed to just focus on defense. Let's well, talk about multifamily. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, look, if our business across the board was highly tilted towards asset classes that were 
shattered or um, we had highly levered properties and no capital, we would be doing different things right now. But we didn't enter the cycle. When you roll it all up and look at what we're doing, um, we're able to focus on these things. Right. Good. Let's talk about the multifamily development business. Um, I, I, I know uh, this morning we just got the NMHC stats, 80% uh, or so of uh, tenants have paid at least some of the rent. Uh, and uh, uh, so that sector is performing almost on pace with what, where it was a year ago and certainly last month. Not quiet, but not a substantial reduction, not like what you hear in retail where uh, collections are 20, 30% of revenues on a good day. So. Um, I presume your portfolio is performing similarly, and uh, I presume that you're doing all that you need to do defensively to manage the assets and the construction and all that kind of good stuff. So um, you can augment that if you'd like. I'd love to hear you talk about what are you doing offensively in the multifamily development business, if anything yet. Okay. Look, I, I was going to say yes uh, to your to, to your. Uh, description, you know, we sat there in March wondering how April would be and April turned out to be, you know, pretty well. We collected the vast majority of rents and things like virtual leasing actually worked and uh, things were a little off historical. Now we're looking at May and May is the margin a little better than April um, across our portfolio. So we clearly are okay. Now, uh, in terms of offensive, it doesn't have the same fundamental shift in demand as a result of this crisis. And so I don't see the same breadth. You're playing certainly defense, paying attention, being involved, working with tenants, you're spending time, you're focused on it. Uh, and there's no doubt that the pace of multifamily development at this point in time has slowed and capital is being careful and thoughtful and you know, wanting to figure out where things land. So the offensive opportunities in multifamily, I would say are not the same as industrial at this moment in time, but that's where I say you start with industrial, multifamily, then office, then retail, then hotels. So, and maybe we'll get to all of that. What, what is your outlook for when we're going to see more action in multifamily? Where do you think it's gonna start? You know, Gotti, this is really interesting to me. We, we, we have a housing crisis in this country. We are undersupplied by millions and millions of units. What has driven us uh, as an investor and as a developer has been demographics, both the markets where people are moving to, which is pretty readily identifiable, as well as the fundamental need for housing in America. Those demographics have not changed as a result of this economic crisis, but obviously with incredibly high levels of unemployment, and job formation, people are gonna be hurting for some time and uh, uh, it'll take some time for it to redevelop. The other question that we have is from a, from a governmental perspective, from a political perspective, you know, we were watching as we entered this crisis, things take place at the state level and local level, whether that was rent control on one end or certain communities working towards alleviating or trying to alleviate the problem uh, with, with relaxing zoning. The question is how will we as a society address this human crisis? It's particularly pronounced on the West Coast. You live in Los Angeles, I don't need to tell you about that. And so right, right. I wonder as a society, as a state government, as a local government, as a federal government, 
you know, how will we feel about these things uh, as people suffer more? And uh, will that change programs, policies, capital? And uh, we need to watch that very carefully and we need to participate in that. As a developer, you tend to build, you, you, you do build new assets and you have to build them in a place where the construction economics and rental economics balance out to, uh, to create value, to create income that justifies uh, a price that's higher than your cost. That drives you to select markets where those prospects exist. Uh, and you mentioned a moment ago that you believe that some of the fundamental demographics are going to continue into the future once this washes through. Um, I completely agree with that. I do wonder though, if you are predicting or expecting any changes in uh, behavior or uh, in uh, factors, other factors that might drive where people are gonna wanna be or where people are gonna end up being and how that affects choice of location, product and price points. Um, you know, there's, you, you, whenever we have these discussions about coming out of this, I'm always reminded of 9-11. I remember like it was yesterday as we sat there as an industry and said, that's it, no more tall buildings, no more dense urban environments. And we were quite wrong. So I, I'd, like to, there, right? I, yeah. I'd like to temper that. But I think it's fair that uh, I've been waiting 20 odd years for the coming age of video conferencing. And here it is. <laughs> and this is a tool that all of us recognize has more application in our business lives than it did before. And perhaps it can alleviate to some extent our quality of life issues. And maybe it's not so important that I need to be in that urban core five days a week. And maybe it's okay to be in that core two or three days a week or three or four days a week. And so these more growth edge quality of life markets at the margin and even in our big urban environments, Los Angeles, difficult town to get around in. Four miles can take you two hours in rush hour, but if you're only going in one or two days a week, maybe it's okay to live a little further away. And I think it's reasonable to expect some of that to occur. But the, the reason people wanted to live in cities going back, you know, to the, to the beginning of the decade, right? 2010 to 2015 had, had more, less to do with where the jobs were, because if you look at places like San Francisco and New York, you actually got jobs back into the city, not away from the city, had more to do with where people wanted to live. Do you think that we are at a, um, from a demographic and preference point of view, and perhaps motivated and informed, maybe accelerated by the pandemic, are going to see a shift in those kinds of priorities and preferences? I'll use the word live, work, play. I think people like live, work, play. I do. I'd like to be in an environment where all of that is available to me, whether it's walking distance or scooter distance or, but it's a community. And I think that that feeling uh, is something that we're all still gonna want. But look at Dallas as an example where, where, where we are. Dallas is a, is a city of nodes. There are now five or six small cities, a Frisco, a Plano, a Dallas, an Irving, a Fort Worth, there are nodes, so that there's not incredible congestion in one specific urban core. And yet all those nodes are connected with one another and it's a broader community. And so is that type of node environment, suburban urban nodes, is that, a, is that what we want? Well, clearly there are places that from topographical reasons can't accommodate that as easily. 
But nonetheless, that seems to be something that satisfies our desire for live, work, play, but also quality of life without two hour commutes every day. So in 2025 or 2030, if we look back on what happened in America with respect to places for where um, multifamily apartments represented good opportunities, where jobs ended up being created, where people ended up living, you expect those patterns to, to continue along the pattern, the trends that began over the last 10 or 20 years? I do. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate that. I happen to agree, but I was curious about your opinion. <laughs> It's always uh, nice when you agree, right? Yeah, that's right. Much, much better, right? Um, let's switch a little bit to uh, your capital market side, your, your um, uh, funds business, investing business. Uh, what are you doing there that's any different from uh, the development business? Well, what opportunities and what uh, sort of proactive activities are you experiencing or, or undertaking? This is but it, uh, it just so happens that the primary investment sectors that the team has been focused on for quite some time are multifamily and industrial. And those two investment classes are a significant majority of, of what our funds invest in. Uh, as I explained earlier, our perspective has been e-commerce on industrial. Our perspective has been demographics around multifamily. But there's a third element of that team and that business, which has been around portfolio aggregation we've been successful in participating in what you may call niche areas, convenience and gas, manufactured housing, other niche areas, where because of our hard work, we're able to curate and aggregate portfolios one by one and develop portfolios that institutional investors may be interested in acquiring. And that portfolio aggregation strategy, we've been deploying that for a long time across a number of these niche areas. And so that from a fund business is something very different than what we do in the development business. And it's been very successful. And I will tell you, these areas like convenience and gas and manufactured housing have been holding up incredibly well uh, during this period of time. I, I could just imagine. Uh, in that business, what happened to the pipeline of transactions that uh, was in place in February coming into March and April? Did you finish those deals that you were buying? Did you... Um, uh, kick the can down the road? Did you delay closing? Did you cancel altogether? What what happened to the pipeline? Look, I think, and I think most market participants participate this way. If you had a contractual obligation that you had in fact committed to, okay. right, you honored, the capital markets honored those commitments, whether it was equity or debt or purchase or sales, that if you were committed to those, clearly if you'd made a deposit, you had to evaluate, you know, the relative merits of that deposit. But things, I used the term earlier, were nailed down uh, most market participants, including ourselves, honored those commitments. The system is working. Things that were not committed, uh, I think most market participants, not all, and industrial was a little bit different, have stepped back uh, to just reevaluate and make sure it made sense in light of reexamining the economic environment that we're operating in, and we behave the same way. So as an investor, what is your posture uh, right now? Are you a buyer? Are you still a hold uh, in hold mode? What, what, are you, uh, what are you doing? I'm going to sound like a broken record, but on the, in, the, in the sector that's industrial, our fund business continues to be active in selling investments, and we are evaluating uh, and moving forward on that evaluation of some new industrial opportunities at this point in time. Other sectors are more wait and see and evaluating, but we have, uh, we have a, a team and, uh, and, and capital and we're paying a lot of attention 
uh, to where those opportunities might be, but it's slower outside of the industrial It's about what prices are. There's not a whole lot of activity, not a lot of pricing, so price discovery is a bit of an art form today. Uh, if you're looking at opportunities, you have to decide, what are you gonna bid on it? How do you figure out today what is the right price for an asset? Well, look, I, I would say at some level, one may have felt that they had certainty in January. They had just as much certainty in January as they have today. Our ability to forecast the future from these economic cycles is highly tainted, as you know. And so fundamentally, the, the algorithms that we rely upon, but that's why there's a slowdown in activity is because there is so much uncertainty. It's difficult to gain conviction around your underwriting and as we know in private real estate, unlike the public market, things take a long period of time to settle down um, in order to close whatever bid-ask spread develops. Right. Well, but you haven't answered my question because in January, we perceived that we had certainty. In uh, May, we know we don't have certainty. So th th that only is a rational information uh, or, or lack thereof, but still today, uh, you have to make a bid. Well, you don't have to, but you said you do make bids. You you are making offers to buy, considering making offers to acquire new assets in your fund business. I'm just curious about how do you, what is the metric or what is the method to uh, come up with a price that you say, you know what, if I can get it for that price, I'm a buyer. I think, uh, Gotti, that our uh, good old school discounted cash flow analysis based upon the assumptions that you believe as an investor on a reasonable basis re re remains the primary tool. I recognize that there have been moments in time, we'll go back to the RTC days, where it was 10 cents on the dollar and it just had to make sense. And I recognize coming out of 08 and 09, sectors like single family homes, that for a period of time were just at such a discount to the underlying replacement cost that you relied upon that. Mm -hmm. that the, you, one might argue, for example, in the hotel sector that that opportunity is becoming available or will become available. And I think that'll depend upon a lot how the lending community acts. Right. It's being incredibly cooperative and working with the equity owners, at least as of today. And so whether or not you'll get the type of per pound valuation levels is yet to be seen. And as you know, the amount of committed capital waiting to pursue that opportunity is multiples of where it was in prior cycles. So it, 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 it is enormous. I, I do think that the Great Recession uh, was uh, a lot less rewarding to most uh, real estate investors because there were fewer opportunities than, let's say, in uh, you know, uh, the RTC days. And there was a lot more liquidity than there was in the RTC. So, you know, both sides of real estate values, they're still good deals, but when you were underwriting them in 2009 or 2010, they didn't look like good deals. It turned out to be great deals, but at the time, you want to say something? No, you had froze for a minute, but uh, oh, I'm sorry. that's yeah. okay. I, I heard you, you, you caught up. Look, Adi, I think one of the things in the real estate industry, we always talk about the committed capital and liquidity, but let's really talk about liquidity. The amount of liquidity that the federal government and fiscal and monetary stimulus across all asset classes that injected, the S&P 500 today is where it was a year ago. Yeah. Right? Where some of the 10% 
So the amount of liquidity that has been injected into our society to sustain asset prices across a broad array of investment activity is very, very significant. And so you have to evaluate that in terms of what your perspective may be on the questions that you're asking. And at this point in time, it doesn't look like the federal government is ready to stop. So you are not sitting with all your cash saying, you know what, uh, rational, today I can only buy things rationally, so I'm just going to wait for things to become irrational, and that's what I'm going to go in. We're, we're going to be very, we've been doing this a long time. These things take time to play out, but we are relying upon these fundamental trends, and there will be pricing at a point in time that will make sense for us. X months, what day, what week, but I am watching this liquidity propping up asset prices across the world and particularly the United States more than any other place in the world. And so you've got more committed capital than any in the world, more federal government support than anywhere in the world, more liquidity than anywhere in the world. And we're just gonna have to see uh, whether the type of distress opportunities that people who were in the business in the early 90s are excited about how they're going to materialize. This party may not be as exciting as that one you're thinking. <laughs> Probably not. Depends for whom. Um, I know you have a board of directors. I know I happen to know many of them, and I think that they are some of the smartest people in the world. Uh, and I'm curious, what questions are they asking you? Um, pretty simple. Uh, first thing, people. How are our people? Uh, people work for us, everybody okay, we went to remote working, and so we, we spent some time in our culture and our people and our health and our safety. That was an area of focus. Um, second was liquidity, this question, how are we? Where are, in, in all of our businesses and all activities, where's our liquidity, how are we doing, what's the stress? Low impact, and that range that I've described to you from hotels to industrial, we spent a lot of time reviewing that portfolio impact. And for the reasons that I outlined earlier, new business opportunities for us as a company. Um, where are those opportunities? How will we pursue them? As you know, businesses are defined in crises. We all know this. Right. You know, opportunities are created and unfortunately, uh, some folks suffer. Um, so how are we going to define ourselves through this crisis and what type of opportunities will we make available for our partners and ourselves, whether it's in our existing companies or funds or otherwise? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I'm not surprised to hear the board uh, being wise in making sure you, you can uh, survive during the period of time ahead of you and that your balance sheet is not going to, uh, uh, present you with any unexpected surprises and uh, that you take care of the people and the organization so that you can live to play another day and that you're ready with the other day and that you're ready to uh, to move into the market. You, you're, you're spot on when you think about the history of at least modern times. Uh, roughly in 10-year increments, there are two years where there are fantastic opportunities. There are probably six or seven years where the market is the market and you can be pretty efficient. Maybe you can outsmart the other guy some of the time, maybe even all the time, but probably not by that much. And then there's a year, sometimes two years, of a transition from those times to the first times. And 
you know, if, if you're not awake or if you're too busy defending yourself in those first two years I described, then you're just uh, uh, struggling to stay afloat for the next seven, eight years. So uh, glad you're thinking about those things and I no, believe it really well. I, I, I do want to, in this conversation, I do want to temper just to some extent. Look, we're going to have unemployment like we've never seen before. And this isn't snapping back overnight. We're going to have a debt load at a federal level, state level, corporate level, individual that's going to sap resources. We're going to move as a society into concepts of resiliency and other areas of friction around our, our, our lives. So I don't mean to underestimate the fundamental impact that this has caused on us. I'm equally recognizing we have never had the type of liquidity in the world's reserve currency that allows us the privilege to do this and the political support to inject that liquidity to support these elements in our society. And so I'm not suggesting that the recession that we're going through and going to continue to going through isn't going to be incredibly painful on all of us and people. But nonetheless, you know, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And I don't think going back to 08 and, and, and saying we're That I, I, I suspect you're absolutely right. So given that, given the point of the, the, that, that perspective that it isn't going to be exactly the same movie replayed uh, and it's not really going to have necessarily the same length or breadth or whatever, but uh, presuming that there will be opportunities to invest and take advantage of dislocations uh, and expecting they will not be where they were last time, the cheese has moved, where is the cheese going to be this time? We're going to stay focused on what we were doing, but I, I, I'm going to try and answer your question as, as best I can. I do think that the movement of Americans into these growth cities in the Southeast and Southwest and the movement out of the Northeast and all the things that are driving will continue. I do believe that these trends that had been set up prior to this COVID, that e-commerce and industrial is a growing area, that there's a need for multifamily housing, that office has some challenges that perhaps will be accelerated retail has its challenges that are accelerated and look hotels are just what they are they are an incredibly volatile capital intensive business that you know has a history of getting into some tough times right i think these things will continue to happen fine but that doesn't answer my question okay uh, that 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 is the long-term normal opportunity uh, the sort of the mega opportunity trends, which we have you have articulated uh, really well. I'm asking about in that two year, six year, two year scenario I described earlier out of every you know uh, mythical ten year period. Uh, where will the dislocations this time around be? They're not going to be where they were in 1990 because the federal government isn't going to make the same mistakes over again. They're not going to be where they were in 2009 and 10, where are they gonna be in 2020 and 21 and 22? Well, look, the dislocation, both at the tenant level and the capital markets level, clearly is taking place in hotels and retail. And two years from now, as leasing, and I think the office sector, those are gonna be the areas where you have dislocation. How are you gonna access that? I think a little bit the old fashioned way, through the debt markets, right? right. And sponsors who didn't have the liquidity to follow through with their redevelopment plans or development plans and they're going to need 
a capital injection partner in order to get them to the other side of this. Um, but on the debt, and, and, and obviously the hotel debt markets are much smaller compared to the retail debt markets. And I'm not sure that the lending community at large is in a position to take back half of America's retail real estate. And so I think that there will be cooperation that will perhaps limit the opportunity for new entrants that perhaps one might have thought, some people might have hoped. Um, I don't see in the class A industrial space the type of distress dislocation that people are looking for. And I'm not sure in multifamily in class A that that's gonna take place either. So you'll see new development occurring earlier versus later in multifamily, early cycle deals where land's a little cheaper, uh, commodities are cheaper, uh, contractors are cheaper. You can reduce your basis by, you know, 10 or 15%, uh, but that's gonna take some time. That's, that's going to take some That's a great perspective. And uh, I love your conviction. I love your analytical uh, approach to how um, to form those convictions. And uh, uh, it certainly seems like between you and your predecessors, Crow Holdings has picked uh, very solid segments of the industry, geographies within which to uh, invest and develop assets in those segments of the industry. And uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's a 70-year-old legacy. It's great to see it continue to thrive. And it's wonderful to see you, uh, a young guy, uh, take, take over the leadership of the organization and drive it into the future, uh, building upon that legacy. So I predict that uh, for the next 70 years, Crow Holdings is going to be uh, uh, still around and very successful as well. Uh, I have an extra question for you, Michael. Uh, what if you um, fast forward to uh, a, a, a let's say a month from today, right? What do you think will be the May surprise? What will be surprising everybody out there that you don't think uh, is all, should have been that surprising, but what's gonna happen that will surprise America by early, mid-June of 2020? <laughs> well, can I limit to the people interested in real estate? <laughs> sure, um, anything you um, want because of the reopening, which certainly may have its health consequences, how quickly hotel revenue and retail rents bounce off their bottom. This, uh, I'm gonna keep coming back to this point about the amount of liquidity that's been injected into our system, whether it's through unemployment support or PPP loans or, and how quickly as people reopen, they're gonna to wanna to make, make a living again. Um, I think that'll be something we'll be talking about in June. And that might, I don't think that's consensus. That might be consensus, but I'm not sure it's consensus yet. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know about the timeline, but I do agree with the pattern. I do, I do believe that human nature is for people to uh, go back to having life normal, whatever normal means. They know it's going to be at least somewhat different, but part, a very important part of things socially and spending money. And I think people are, are eager to uh, do that. Hopefully not too quickly, but you know, my personal point of view is uh, sort of a macroeconomics uh, terms that by the end of the fall, by the end of the third quarter, early fall, I guess, we should be under 20% in unemployment. So there'll be a big bounce back of about 10 or 12 million jobs. 
And by the end of the year, I'm hoping that we'll be under 10% of unemployment, which will mean that total unemployment will be somewhere in the 10 to 15 million. Still a big number, still a tragedy, but nowhere near the proportions uh, of today. And uh, I hope that all those small businesses, uh, many of them are able to restart and uh, get, back, get, get, get back in business. Time, time will tell. I do hope also that between uh, detection and testing and uh, the development of some vaccines or at least treatments that what, how, if we do open a little too early, which may be the case in some places, that those two things catch up with us and allow us to overcome uh, and control the respreading of the virus in a manner that doesn't require us to uh, slip back into shutdown, sequestering, and another cycle of what we just went through in the last 60 days, which will make the challenge of coming back that much more difficult. So time, time will tell. Time will tell. But if my, uh, and we all need to take care of ourselves, give our health, and that's a very personal decision. But I will tell you one data point I have. I have a 20-year-old daughter who's a sophomore in college who's been sheltered in place here with, with me and the family. And she's itching to go back to school and live in her student housing. And she shows me the videos of the, all these kids who are back at college. There's no social distancing going on. They're engaging in life. They're moving forward. It's a demographic group, which obviously perhaps doesn't have the same concerns that we do, but right. it does show you about human nature. So I remain optimistic, but I do hope um, this healthcare, come, seeing what I've seen here, uh, I really do, really hope uh, that we find some solutions for these health crises that we're in. And I wish you and your family luck getting through this period of time too. Thank you, Michael. Right back at you. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us today and for sharing your wisdom. I appreciate it. I look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks, Scotty. Be good. Take care. Take care.